Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Becca Skinner. Becca is a Bozeman-based photographer, writer, and adventurer whose work has taken her to some of the farthest corners of the globe. Growing up between Colorado and Wyoming, Becca was raised by adventurous and supportive parents who nurtured her love of the outdoors and her artistic endeavors. A genuine interest in social work and helping the less fortunate led to her winning grants to photograph post-Katrina New Orleans and post-tsunami Sumatra. Those experiences and the body of work they produced allowed Becca to pursue her passion of photography full-time, and her career continues to grow and evolve in exciting ways. As you'll hear, Becca has been willing to be single-mindedly focused and take calculated risks to make it as a professional photographer. When she didn't win the National Geographic Young Explorers Grant the first time she applied, she dusted herself off, refocused her efforts, and won the grant on her second try. After saving enough money, she struck out on her own on a 32,000-mile road trip through the American West, where she lived in her car, honed her craft, and continued to build her portfolio. She's devised methods for staying positive in immensely uncomfortable situations, such as the cold, wet expedition in Vancouver's coastal backcountry, which we discuss in detail. Despite her success, Becca remains humble and down-to-earth, and we had a very fun conversation. As usual, we covered a wide range of subjects, and I felt like we only scratched the surface. We discussed her childhood in the West and how her family played such a formative role in shaping her career and life. We chatted about her experiences in New Orleans and Sumatra and how the disaster victims' attitudes toward the catastrophes varied so widely. We discussed her first road trip through the West and how she handled being alone for such long stretches. We also discussed the importance of having solid expedition teammates and the challenges of integrating back into day-to-day life after an intense trip. And of course, we discussed favorite books, films, and the best advice she's ever received. If you don't already, be sure to follow Becca on Instagram and other social media. Links to everything are in the episode notes. Hope you enjoy. The way that I've been starting out these interviews is I ask people, when you meet somebody for the first time, never met them, and they ask you that question, what do you do? How do you answer that? Uh, Well, I think that I do. I, I always sort of answer depending on the crowd that I'm in, but the easiest answer is photographer. And I think if there's opportunity to explain further, I'm, I say I'm a photographer and a writer, a conservationist and a filmmaker. That's awesome. And that's the exact reason why I wanted to have you on here because it's, <laughs> it's all super, <laughs> super interesting. So how would you describe your photography? Oh man, I, I describe it as I, people and landscapes and I, I love backlit photos. So I do a lot of shooting into light. So like really backlit Western people and landscapes, I I think, but, um, as an overarching theme adventure, probably. Cool. And so about half the people I've had on this podcast are from the West and the other half are like me who live somewhere else and then came to the West, but you're, you're Mm. from here, you're a native. So where did you grow up? I grew up kind of splitting time. I claim both Wyoming and Colorado. I, I was raised, uh, for the first part of my life in 
a suburb outside of Denver <clears throat> called Parker. Yep. And my parents still live there. They moved into their house when they were one of 30 homes. Wow. And yeah, as you can imagine, living in Colorado now, it's much different than that. But um, we, my, my dad's folks lived in Wyoming. So we would travel up to Wyoming really frequently and, and go visit them. And when I was 16, I split time and lived half of the year in Lander, Wyoming, and then went to high school in Denver. So I kind of claim both. Yeah. Well, those are both uh, super cool places. I love Lander. Um, oh, me too. When I, uh, when too. I moved out here, I Pretty soon after I moved, I was driving down the interstate there through Lander and saw all these 18 wheelers flipped over on their side um, from uh-huh. the land. And I just, yeah. I could, that was a real introduction to, to how intense it can be out here. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so when you were growing up, splitting time between those two places, were you spending a lot of time outdoors? I mean, were there, what, what initially sparked your interest in, in the outdoors and photography and art? Yeah, well, the outdoors, um, we were raised in the outdoors. Both of my parents are geologists by trade. So we used to go on vacation and I, I like to joke that I thought it was really cool and that every family went on vacation to the Wyoming desert and looked at fossils until I was probably 13 and realized other families were going to Disney World and <laughs> it was like, I'm getting so gypped. But um, we just we spent all of our time, all of our free time outside, uh, on public land, uh, exploring. That was very much my childhood. That's, that's super cool. Where, like when you think back on your, on your childhood and exploring different parts of Wyoming or Colorado, are there any, any specific areas that stick out as being kind of very, very memorable or, or formative in your, in your thinking <laughs> about these wide open spaces? Yeah, we, Spent a lot of time uh, in Muddy Gap, Wyoming, or just I don't even know where that of. is. Yeah, isn't that great? It's it's so it's a blink of a town. So you drive through on the highway south from Lander, and there's no gas station. There's probably maybe 15 people that live in Muddy Gap, and a really cool little pottery studio there that is sometimes open, sometimes not. But um, there are agates out there they call it agate flats and we used to go out there and just look at agates um and we would go out there for i don't know a week at a time and we would break down in the car or the air conditioning would stop working or uh we would just go camping on that land and so that is a place that i definitely associate with looking back on my childhood that's really cool. And I thought I knew all the spots off the top of my head, but I, I did not know that one. That's cool. Um, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll put links to, to all this stuff in the, in the episode notes. Um, so you decided so as a, as a child, you're out there doing these adventures. Were you also, when, when did your interest in photography come about? Uh, it probably wasn't until I got into college. My parents gave me a, a camera as a graduation gift from high school and it was just a point and shoot, but I was really excited about it. And in my first few years of college, it was a really fun break from school to go take friends on photo shoots around. I went to school in Laramie. So there was a lot of outdoor activities to do, but it's winter half the year and freezing cold wind. So we would just go out and, 
and do these mock photo shoots. And it was just for fun. But I really started to pick out the liking for it. And then when I got a dog, I would take her on a walk every day after class and would just take my camera with me. And I think that's when really the root of the love of it started to come about. Got it. And so when you were in at University of Wyoming, um, if I if I read this correctly, you were studying social work and technical writing. What what sparked your interest yeah. in that? Social work, I've always sort of leaned towards that. I, I thought I wanted to go into outdoor therapy, so take kids outside that um, might need to be in therapy and, and sort of run that course outside and use the outdoors as a catalyst for change. So I thought social work was the way to get to that. And a few years into social work, I realized that wasn't actually what I wanted to do. But technical writing, I had always really loved writing and thought I was pretty good at it. And uh, I got a job writing grants for the state of Wyoming when I was in college. And so that was just an easy way to, to mimic what I was doing for work. Got it. And you mentioned outdoor therapy um, and being there in Lander. I guess you were mm-hmm. you were very close to to Knowles. I did a semester in Knowles during college, and and it was just a life changing experience. But yeah. did did you have any experiences? What what as a as a college student or before college? What did you have any experiences that that led you to to understand kind of the the healing power of the outdoors or the the um, power that that being outdoors can um, can have on on helping people out? Yeah, I mean, I think growing up outside, there were so many little magical experiences that were really tied pretty closely to my heart that just helped me get through rough times. And then I was a backcountry guide in uh, Montana, in the tobacco roots of Montana, when I was just a few years into college. And I was working with 14-year-old girls. And it wasn't an outdoor therapy program, but watching... I think being a little bit older and watching 13 and 14 year old girls experience the outdoors and the sort of empowerment that came from setting up a tent by yourself and cooking a meal for 14 people. Uh, it's just those little things were really inspiring to me to want to share that with people. Yeah, I, I agree with that. We were just talking before we started recording about, about my little girls and, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to force them to do anything, but I'm going to highly encourage them to either do Knowles or Outward Bound at some point cause, just because of that, that that empowering um, feeling that it gave me. And so I would imagine it would give them as well. It's pretty powerful stuff. Um, so if if I get this wrong, correct me. It's just from researching on the Internet. But I saw that during college you got a grant to go down and photograph um, New Orleans post-Katrina. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So I applied – um, I got a text one day from a few different people that said, have you seen this poster? And it was through the arts department at the University of Wyoming. And it was to photograph five years post Hurricane Katrina. And I had never done any sort of project like this. I was just shooting photos for fun. And I, I applied on a whim and submitted my portfolio of like just photos of my friends and my travels outside and, I got this grant to go to uh, New Orleans and it was only for three days, which looking back on it seems crazy to 
develop a whole body of work in three days, but it was a really, really monumental experience in my life of getting to do a project that combined social work or the aspects of social work that I really love, like listening to people's stories with photography and being the translating point to share that with other people. And that was a really big experience. What were the big takeaways from seeing that? Cause I've never been to a, uh a massive disaster zone like that. My hometown got flooded pretty bad after a hurricane. I mean, really wrecked, uh, but it was nothing on the scale of Katrina. What, yeah. what did you think? I mean, what, when you left, what, what were the big takeaways? I think the biggest unexpected takeaway for me was how angry people were. And it was such a, it, I think looking back on it and looking back on that specific trip, and then comparing it to the next big project I did surrounding post-natural disaster communities in Indonesia, there was such a difference of, of anger and blame on the government and just the immense disappointment that they had been let down, that so many people had been pushed to the side or forgotten about or um, just weren't listened to. And I think that for me was a really important thing to hear of just, okay, you feel like you haven't been listened to. So I'm going to take the time to listen to you and I want to do your story justice. And the other thing that was really big for me was I, I grew up in a very non-diverse setting and it was the first time that I had been maybe a minority and that was also a really good thing for me to experience it at 19 when I did that. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how different or, or how different um, the South, you know, everywhere from new Orleans yeah. all the way up to where I'm from it can, is from, from out here from in, in all aspects, but especially the, the mix of, of races. I mean, it's, yeah. it's amazing. I mean, where I grew up, I was, I was basically a minority and um, mm. it gives you a different, um, a much different perspective than a lot of people who, who don't grow up in that area. It's, it's pretty yeah. wild. It's almost like a different yeah. country in some ways. Yeah, it really was. It really was. It, it was such a powerful experience for me to have at that age. I would really recommend everyone experience that once in their life. I think it gives you such a good paradigm shift to be a minority. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I highly recommend international travel, but I think you can also get just as much travel, you know, um, kind of experience and a, a new perspective from travel in the U S to places like that. Cause it's just so yes. different from anywhere else. Yeah. I feel like even people talking with, with the Southern drawl was not something that I had experienced before. And I felt so bad asking people like, I'm so sorry. Can you repeat that? Or can you say that slower? Because um, especially people who have been in that area in New Orleans for such a long time, just have a really heavy Southern drawl. And it's so beautiful when you're, when you can understand it. And I, it was a good, it was a good experience for me to have to ask questions and ask people to repeat themselves and, and everything like that. Don't be embarrassed if you have to ask me to repeat myself with my phone. <laughs> 
<laughs> I won't great. take any offense. <laughs> um, so did you use the work that you put together on that trip when you applied for your National Geographic fellowship or grant? Yeah, absolutely. That was the main body of work that I presented as a, hey, I can do a whole photo story. That was my main, my main work. So how did you hear about the National Geographic deal? I mean, how, how did that come on your radar? And, can you, and then can you just talk about the whole process of, of applying and then getting it and, and then taking off on that trip? Yeah, sure. So I have a friend, his name's Joe Reese, and you might be familiar with his work. He does a lot of pronghorn, well, he did a pronghorn migration project um, and then a mule deer migration project, and he works a lot in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Yeah, I do, so, know, I do know of him. Actually, somebody two days ago emailed me and said I need to get him on the podcast. That's oh, you really should. You really should. Joe is such a lovely human and such a talented person. Cool. Um, he and I were going to school together, and he had just won the same National Geographic Young Explorers Grant is what it was called at the time, and he said, I really think you should apply. And the name National Geographic was really sparkly and new. And I was like, that's so far out of what I could do. And he was like, I really think you should apply. And so I actually applied for a project um, with two other people. And we did not get the grant. And I was so devastated. Like, I thought my trance had been blown and it in retrospect, it was not a great project and I don't think we would have done a really great job with it. So I'm really grateful that that did not go through, but I decided to apply again, which you're allowed to do. And um, that, that second time um, I, I did get that grant with, with an expedition partner who I was going to school with. His name's Chris Michael. So <clears throat> when we had heard about the grant, we had started doing all of this research on just all the various projects we could do. And I applied for that first one and didn't get it and was kind of reassessing what I wanted to talk about. And I went to a Young Explorers grant workshop where there was a photographer named Jim Baylog who was attending. And Jim um, is the front and center of the extreme ice survey that's based in Boulder, Colorado. And he does a lot of photography and films surrounding uh, climate change and glacier recession. So he had flown to Banda Aceh, Sumatra, immediately following the tsunami and taken these photos of architectural artifacts that had washed into rice paddies and all of these just amazing photos of the devastation. And I was sitting next to him at a dinner that night at the workshop and was talking to him about what I had done. And I said, I had just finished this project on post hurricane Katrina, New Orleans. And he said, man, I did this. I took all these photos in Sumatra and I have no idea what it looks like now. And at that point it had been six years later and both of us kind of the light bulb went off and I said, I think that should be my project. And he said, I think that's a great idea. And we kind of shook hands on it. And then we worked together along with Chris to come up with this, this project of photographing post uh, tsunami 
Indonesia. And so when you got over there, how, how long after the tsunami was it? It was seven years past the tsunami when I went over in 2011. And Mm -hmm. so what was it like? I mean, was it still just completely, completely destroyed in a lot of ways? You know, no, I was so surprised just looking at the difference of Hurricane Katrina and, or I guess, New Orleans and Banda Aceh, when you went out from the city center of New Orleans, there was, there was devastation still. And in Sumatra, we really had to work hard to find places that still looked ruined or, or devastated. And they had just done a really good job rebuilding. And a lot of that is because their livelihoods depended on fishing and in coastal communities. So those got rebuilt almost immediately. Um, yeah, it, it was really interesting to have to search to find signs of a tsunami there. And so you mentioned that the that there was a lot of anger in New Orleans and maybe not as much over there. Why mm-hmm. do you why do you think that is? I mean, I, I guess just anger at the government or, or why what do you think makes uh, accounts for that that difference and that that difference in attitude? Yeah, I, I believe it to be attributed to religion that Banda Aceh is ninety eight ninety nine percent uh, Muslim and they have the Sharia law in place. I mean, the religion there is very, very strong and they believe that the tsunami was God's intention. And so there was, <clears throat> there was just a lot of respect for that was the way that it was meant to be. So why, sh- why can we be angry at, thing that we most believe in. Um, And I had read in a book that post-traumatic stress disorder is the Western idea of the loss of control and that they just didn't believe it was a loss of control. They believed that it was an act of God. Really interesting. That's, that's super interesting. I'd never, I'd never heard that, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you 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 did that. How how long were you over there? We were over there for maybe a month. Wow! A month. I bet yeah. that was. Uh, had you ever been to that part of the world before? No, no. It was really interesting. I, in general, all of my experiences were really positive, and there was also a lot of cultural adjustments for myself as a Western woman living in a place with the Sharia law. I mean, my expedition partner was male and we weren't together or married. And so we weren't allowed to stay in the same place or be seen walking together alone. There was just a lot of, um, there was a lot of rules that I had to adjust to and out of respect for the cultural um, boundaries there, we really tried our best to follow them. So when you got back from that, you were, you were still in college at this point. Is that, is that right? That is true. Yeah. Man, you were doing a lot more during college than I was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you, so then uh, you got back and is that when the wheels started turning that, that you could 
possibly you know make photography a, a full time career? Yeah, you know, I my uncle was a professional climber, and I grew up watching slideshows. That's Todd, Todd Skinner, right? Yep, that's correct. Man, um, he was a badass. He was he was great. He was great. Um, but I think that people doing photography as a living was not something that was new to me, but I just didn't really know how to make that work. I, I didn't know a lot of female photographers. I only knew of male photographers and most of them had been in the climbing community. So it, just trying to figure out my way in that I I knew I, I wanted to try it, but I didn't really know how to get into it or if it was practical. So at that point, I I just didn't quite know how to get there, but the wheels were turning. And so at what point did you take off on your road trip? Because I, I, I read that at some point you decided to, to that you were going to go all in and you took, like what was it, like a 32, 33,000-mile road trip around the West taking photos? Yeah, I... It was after that project ended and um, after my Young Explorers grant ended and I decided to move to Bozeman and I had found a place on Craigslist and I got here and dropped my stuff in a room and was like, I I don't know what I'm going to do here. And I had made a little bit of money working, writing grants and I decided, you know what? I'm going to pay rent here and I'm just going to travel until I figure out what I really want to do or if I even really want to be in Bozeman. I didn't know anyone when I moved here. So it, um, yeah, my, my road trip was an answer to just trying to find where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. So I I would imagine with your parents being geologists, they were, they're, you know, highly educated. Um, and, and so what did they think about your, your taking a, a break from school to pursue this dream? Yeah, they actually were the ones who suggested it. Really? That's uh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I have such awesome parents. They're so great. They, they, um, were really gracious in helping me with my school costs. And I felt like I was really wasting that money. I wasn't interested in going to school and I kept skipping classes to climb and I was just not being a very responsible student. And I think through a lot of really honest conversations with them, they encouraged me to take a leave and just to work. And so I did that at writing grants. And I think that just the environment of Laramie, the winters are really tough. And, and then I decided to move to Bozeman and they were really supportive along that whole path, you know, wanting me to succeed, but um, not wanting me to to fail. And they have just been really encouraging people on on wanting me to do whatever was best for me. So you took off from Bozeman in your it was that, did you have the truck at that point? I didn't have the truck. I was living out of a Toyota Rav Four. Nice. Um, yeah, I barely fit in the back. I'm a pretty short person, but I had a lot of stuff with me and I, I barely fit into the back of it. It wasn't super comfortable. <laughs> so, so you just took off, where did you go first? Like, so, so you just decided, all right, I need to, I need to, 
I want to hit the road. I want to, you know, take as many photos as possible. And so what, where was first stop? Yeah. Uh, the first stop was Yosemite. I worked my way down to Yosemite and my uncle had had a cabin there that he sold to a friend who agreed to let me live there for two or three months. So I stayed in this little tiny 500 square foot cabin outside of Yosemite on the edge of the national forest. And it didn't have cell phone service. It did not have um, internet. And I just trail ran and read books and cooked for myself and lived by myself for the first time in my life. And that was really special and really eye-opening, I think, to be that removed from, from everyone. Are you introverted or extroverted? Oh, I'm so introverted. Okay. That's how I was. Yeah. That, I, I'm, I'm fairly uh, introverted <laughs> myself. And, but you know, some people, the idea of being in a cabin like that by themselves is like the, the worst thing in the world, but that's my dream yeah. come true. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was great. I, I could have probably done it if I had had some form of communication. I think being totally removed was an eye-opening experience for me and just how I dealt with loneliness and what I did for fun by myself. I mean, I would get so bored. I'd be like, all right, I guess I'll go running again. And, or I'll, I'll read, you know, the 300, 300th uh, page of this book or yeah, it was, um, it was good to have that experience. And I don't think that I could do it long term. Yeah, it's not, I mean, I, I think it, I'm with you. I think it would be nice, a nice break or a nice recharge, but I think as a species, we're not meant to be, completely locked off alone like that. It's not, I mean, that's what the Unabomber was doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to repeat that. No. <laughs> um, and so were you, so you were taking photos the, the whole time through this process in Yosemite. Is that right? Yes. Did yep. you have any, did you get to know any of the, any of the climbers there? You mentioned, you know, you like to climb. Were you, were you involved in that community at all? I, I sort of was, but I, Everyone who was living in Camp 4 and really the hardcore climbers, I felt like they were, you know, 50 times past where I was. And I would have friends come into town and stay with me in the cabin and, and we would go climb that way. But I wasn't really involved with the community and climbing. I, I spent a lot of time by myself in Yosemite. That's a really neat experience. You should you should write a book about that someday. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so from Yosemite, where did, where did you head after that? I went to Southern California. Um, I had gone on a surf trip there a few years prior and met you surf? a really, I very badly. Yes. I love surfing and yeah, it doesn't Do matter. You? It doesn't matter if you're surfing badly or, or the best it's, it's equally fun. I think it's the greatest sport ever. Oh, it's so fun. I think I realized that I'm not good at competing for the same resource. Yes. Like in climbing, it's you're not trying to push anyone off your same route, but in surfing, you're all going for the same good wave. And I am just not an aggressive person in, in that sport, nor am I good enough to be aggressive. So, um, but gosh, it is so fun. Every time you stand up on a surfboard, it's like magic, right? Oh yeah, it completely is. And I'm with you on the, the competing for waves. I, I learned to surf in Costa Rica. My wife and I lived there for a year and luckily where I was, it was a wide open beach and there was, there was one break where everybody competed and then there was three miles of wide open. And so I never, I just did the wide open. And, um, but then 
a few months ago, I was in the Bay Area and went surfing and there were all these people. And it's a completely different experience trying to compete for the waves and worry about somebody getting mad at you and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know if you can find the, the lonely waves. It's it's uh, the best ever. But I, yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not into the, the, the fighting over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be the ideal place to learn on a, on a beach with three miles of singular waves. Yeah. You'd like yeah. that place. I saw your I saw your piece about um, when you you circum circumnavigated that uh, that island in Panama, and yes. this place is is Playa Grande in Costa Rica, and it's it's been conserved, um, and it's a sea turtle um, conservancy, and they don't yeah. allow any building within eyesight of the beach, and so it's just this wide open um, three mile long beach that's just completely pristine. It's it's really cool. I, I highly recommend uh- it. Oh yeah, I'm I'm taking a note on that right now to write that down. Thanks and, for that suggestion. Yeah, you should definitely um, check it out. Um, and so, so uh, you know, as, as you're on this trip and you're having these great experiences and you're learning more about yourself and you're taking, you know, kind of still piling up this body of work. At at what point did you start? I don't know. Did you ever start shopping it to brands, or how did you how did you make the transition from? kind of doing this on your own to transitioning into doing it professionally and making money on it. Yeah, it um it was a really long process. Through my grant with National Geographic, I got to meet a lot of really great people and a lot of female role models and male role models also, but a lot of people who were kind of encouraging me and introducing me to the right people to do this as a career. And one of those people, her name was Ann Kirchick, and she actually hired me when I was in college to shoot photos on a North Face speaker series tour. So I went on tour with Jimmy Chin and Conrad and Renan Ozturk as they were talking about their first attempt at Maru. And I was, it was the greatest introduction for me as an 18 or 19 year old getting to see these guys talk and getting to meet Jimmy and and shoot photos of of him with my point and shoot camera I mean it was like I was the biggest photography imposter but it was a really great introduction to a person that uh, was doing this for a living and making it work and when I got my Young Explorers grant, uh, Jimmy was someone who I reached out to just for a little bit of encouragement in the aspect of storytelling when we ran into a few walls there. And and he has just continued to be really supportive of my work and career, which has been really major. But it was people like Anne and, and Rebecca Martin, who also works at National Geographic, who were introducing me to brands when I was going through this traveling period and the North Face hired me for just random jobs. Like everyone that wrote the North Face, a handwritten letter, the North Face hired me to handwrite letters back to them, whether it was for a product that didn't work or a little kid saying, oh, I love my North Face gloves. I I would write back and say, oh, thanks so much for writing the North Face. We love that you love your gloves and here is a sticker. And (laughs) (laughs) it was like the best job to have when you're on the road, just handwriting letters for hours at a time. 
I love hearing that because, you know, when you see your life just through social media, you know, it looks like this, this just awesome thing that, that just kind of happened. But I love hearing stories like that from you and from other artists of kind of this grind and, and doing, doing the, the non, um, sexy jobs to, to work your way up. You know, I think that's, that's, that's a really important point for people to understand. Oh yeah, absolutely. It did not happen overnight for me at all. And so when did you, when did you end, was there an abrupt end to your road trip or has it just kind of continued, um, since then, ever since you, you started making it as a, as a professional photographer? Yeah, there was a definite abrupt end when my RAV4 died. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, I was outside of Truckee, California and I was coming up a pass and, um, Oh, what is the name of that pass where all of those people? Donner. Ugh. Yes, thank you. I was yeah. coming up Donner Pass and my transmission blew. And it was the scariest noise. I had been living out of the RAV4 for months with my dog. And um, I got it towed to a shop and lived in a hotel for a week in Truckee and just had no idea if it was going to be able to get fixed. And um, it was at that point where it cost far more money to replace the transmission than to just sell it for scrap. And my lovely dad drove all night from Denver to Truckee to lend me his car. And so I could get back home and that, I mean, my parents have, like I said, have been so supportive of me, but that was really a hero moment for me where I felt like, oh, my home just died. And um, then I think it was after that where I I felt like I should probably just try and give Bozeman a, a go and, and try and plant some roots there. And I think it's hard to, when you're on the road, trying to set roots down and then not really living there, but only kind of living there. It's hard to be in between two places or multiple places. So I ended the road trip there when the, when the car died. Last week I was talking with, um, Brendan Leonard and uh, I believe you know him. And he, uh, he was saying kind of the same thing that it's really cool to have lived out of your car, but he, he doesn't want to be doing it anymore. (laughs) You know, it's a great experience to have had, but, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot tougher than these, uh, you know, the van life Instagram posts that people put up, making it just seem like it's this idyllic kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's tough. I would, I would get, I've never done it for more than a summer, but it's, um, it's, it's tough in the little bit I've done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was perfect for me at the time and there became a time that it just really wasn't the right fit anymore. Also, your dad is my, is my hero. I hope I can pull (laughs) off something like that for one of my little girls one day and have them bragging Uh, about me. That's pretty cool. You will. You will. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So what was it about Bozeman that, that kept pulling you, pulling you that way? What, what, what was the, cause you said you didn't know many people there. Why, Why was, why were you so focused on Bozeman? Yeah. It's funny. I feel like everyone else who has moved here from a different place will tell you, Oh, I moved up here for the skiing or I moved up here for the, for the fly fishing. And I honestly moved up here for the airport. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to live in another small mountain town and this seemed to fit the bill as far as location and temperature and 
still had four seasons, but the winters weren't as harsh as Laramie. And I had driven through once when I was a guide and really liked the look of it. And I, yeah, I just decided to move and the airport is not terribly expensive to fly in and out of. And that was the major draw for me being someone that likes to travel. Yeah, Bozeman's a cool place, and it's interesting how so many people that I've had on this podcast are uh, based out of Bozeman, at least part of the time. It's kind of this neat community of really hardcore outdoors adventurers and then really um, you know, creative people and uh, you know, sportsmen, hunters, anglers. It's just uh, it's about as west – it's about as Rocky Mountain West as you can get, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think moving here gave me – I. I launched into photography full-time when I moved here after some time, but getting to know so many people here who are self-employed or work from home or just have a non-conventional job was so huge in my confidence to move forward in photography because there are so many people who are doing that here. It's awesome. Yeah. And you're right. You know, you're right there in the, you know, greater Yellowstone ecosystem. You can get to Jackson hole, you can get to Yellowstone. And yeah, speaking of Yellowstone, we were talking about this before we started recording, but, um, can you talk a little bit about some of the, you were mentioning some of your, your interest in the, in the reintroduction of the wolves. And I just read that book called American wolf. I don't know if you've read that, but could you just talk a little bit about, about, you know, your, thoughts on that and your experience in, in getting to know more about that up in that area? Cause I think it's super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I am going to be honest when I say I, I know information from what people have told me and part of my, I, I got contacted by the Rocky Mountain Wolf project to just kind of explore what it would mean to reintroduce wolves in Colorado and how that is being mirrored off of their reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone. And as you know, this is a really controversial subject up oh, yeah. here. Um, and so part of my inquisitiveness and, and desire to talk to them or be a part of this project with them is just to learn more about the positives and the negatives and, and to hear, um, from both sides of the party to make up my own decision but I have a good friend her name's Louise Johns who works on photography projects in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and beyond but mainly her work is focused here on on ranching and predator conflict Mm -hmm. and most of my um, knowledge about this conflict has just come from looking at her work and hearing her speak about uh, the Tom Minor Basin that sits right outside of Yellowstone and the ranching families that live there and their work to just help minimize predator conflict with with their cattle. And um, so I, yeah, I'm just learning more about it. Right I now. think that's very admirable. And I think with something like the wolf in the wolf re- reintroduction, it's just such a hot issue and it just, people have such stern opinions <laughs> and it, I think yeah. it prevents a lot of people from even wanting to learn about it one way or the other, because people just get so damn angry about it. And, um, yeah. I think, but I think anybody with a brain, you, you have an obligation to, to learn and, and, you know, you don't have to make up your mind, 
um, yeah. one way or the other. And the reality is it's a complicated issue and there is no right answer. Um, and so I think that's, um, I think that's very admirable. And I think living up there and, and get, having the platform you have, I think it's, you're, if I were in your position, that's exactly what I would be doing as well. Just educating myself. So that's cool. I, I'll look forward to, we can, we can maybe do a part two in a while and, and find out what you learned. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, so I, I watched a video about you that was put out by National Geographic where you were given a, um, a speech about your life and work. And by the way, you did great. You're a great public speaker. That would have made me very nervous and scared. <laughs> Thank um, you. But you, you mentioned that, and I guess it was maybe 2015 or 16, that you were out in the field something like 250 days or something. Is that is that right? Yeah, that that sounds right. I had calculated specifically the number of days that I say in that video, but I that year was so busy for me and I had a New Year's resolution that I was going to spend more nights outside than inside. And it was in 2015. So I just made that an intention. And I mean, I slept in my truck in friends' driveways. I, it was like my attempt to, to just try and make that happen for myself. And then what really pushed it over the edge, though, was I, I had an expedition at the end of the year to go uh, film coastal wolves up in outside of Vancouver mm-hmm. in Canada. And we were on this island for about 30 days. So that really <laughs> was a direct um, contributor to my nights outside was 30 straight days outside. And I would imagine being in the Pacific Northwest, that was pretty, um, some may say miserable, I'll just say interesting weather. I mean, was it uh, was it raining the whole time and cold and that kind of thing? You know, it rained a lot, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. It was because it's coastal, it's really heavy temperate rainforest on one side. And then you've got the ocean right in front of you. And so when the weather moved in, it was really fast and it would rain. I mean, it would pour rain and you would think that like it couldn't rain anymore and it would keep going. And then we also had a lot of sunshine, which I was really grateful for. So the weather wasn't actually, I think if it had rained the whole time, it would have grated on me, but it was actually a nice mix. So when you're out there on these expeditions and you know, you're in challenging conditions, everything from like these rainstorms to snowstorms, um, have you come up with any techniques because you've been doing it for so long? Have you come up with any techniques to, to kind of keep a positive attitude out there? Because uh, Speaking of the Pacific Northwest, that's where I did my semester in Knowles during college. And I remember we were on a section on the Olympic Peninsula and it rained. It it rained for seven days straight and it didn't stop. And it was like 40 degrees. And that was like a turning point in my life where I realized that it doesn't, the conditions don't matter. All that matters is my attitude. And so do you, did you figure out any, have have you figured out any um, techniques for keeping a positive attitude in these kind of challenging conditions? I think that something that has become really clear to me is that I am an introvert and I really, I do well with just a little bit of time to myself every day. So whether that's taking 10 minutes in the morning and and writing in a journal or taking that time at night or just going for a walk or 
being by myself, it's hard for me to keep going if I'm not getting a break from people. And so that's really helpful. And then I would also say the people that you're with, as we were talking about earlier, like my uncle always said, the people who you want with you when <laughs> when morale gets low are the people who are going to make you laugh. And mm-hmm. and that is so true. That's so true. Yeah, I think a sense of humor is key. In, in, in my experience, uh, you know, having good teammates – is so important because I feel like you're either going to come away from like a really hard trip. You're going to come away best of friends or, or worst enemies. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's not much in between. <laughs> I mean, how do you, for, for these trips you go on, how do you kind of, I don't know what the word would be screen your, your potential partners. Cause the reality is you don't really know how people are going to act until you get out there. I mean, is that, have you figured out right. a way that do you have any trusted um, expedition partners that you go to nowadays? Oh yeah. My, my friend, Clara Fiesler, who I did the circumnavigation of, um, Bastamentos in Panama with is kind of has been my go-to expedition partner. And we, we can bicker like an old married couple. And the next minute we're laughing so hard we're crying. She's just, she's someone who I trust her instinct and I, I trust her, um, judgment and she has, just consistently been a great expedition partner for me. And then also my fiance, Eduardo Garcia is, uh, has been a really fun partner to have outside too. just his knowledge of the backcountry. And I think people that have good judgment and good attitudes are the people that go the furthest in my book. And then are also knowledgeable of the outdoors because I've been in situations where I've been the most knowledgeable and I always like to pick people that might have a little bit more knowledge than I do, you know, just for safety. Yeah. That's smart. That's smart. And it shows that that there's not a unnecessary ego at play. Cause I think some people like me in the, they, they want to always be the smartest one in the room. And that's, that's not a way for growth, at least in my experience. Um, so speaking of expeditions, what is the, the hardest the hardest trip you've ever done or the hardest, it doesn't even have to be a long trip, but it could be just like a one day deal. But is there anything that sticks out in your mind as being like, holy cow, that was extremely challenging. Yeah. I think that trip to film coastal wolves was the most challenging for a few reasons. Um, I, I was there with just one other person who was a videographer and I, I think we had not worked together before. And so there was just, a learning curve of learning how the other person worked and reacted. And we ended up having a great time on that trip, but uh, being so far removed, we were two of the only people on the Island for that long. So it was almost hard to readjust back into society after being, after having zero communication with the outside world for that long. And then the amount of weight that I was carrying. Also, I had a 110 liter backpack that was full to the brim. Holy, and that's big. That I mean, it when I put it on, I disappeared behind it. Like I am a short legged person, and I it was a lot of weight for me. Um, but when you're living out there, you know, we had one food drop, and and that was it. So it was all supplies for a whole month. When you come back from one of these intense trips like that, is it hard for you to adjust to 
kind of normal day-to-day life or are you pretty pumped to be back in normal day-to-day life? That one specifically was really hard for me to adjust to. I, I think, yeah, I, you get so used to your routine in one space that it was just really hard to be, I came back to Vancouver and was in Vancouver for a few days and I was like, it's so noisy. I can't sleep. I like, there are so many people everywhere and no one, I think an experience like that too, when you're so far removed, like there are not a lot of people that can relate to that experience. So you try to explain it to someone and they're like, wow, that sounds intense. And, and, um, unless you've been in that situation, it's, it's hard to imagine what that feels like to be reintroduced. So yeah, that, that was challenging for me. Good. Cause I have the same, uh, I had the same reaction whenever I've done anything challenging or hard for, you know, weeks on end. And it's, it, it's always such a huge adjustment. Um, when, while well, I did a, a trip in Alaska about three weeks before my wife and I got married or I got home and my wife insisted that there be a three week buffer between when I got home and we got married. So I wouldn't be acting crazy at the wedding. <laughs> Um, yeah, you picked well. That's that's a good. That's a person that knows you. Yeah, she does you know? know me for better or worse. She she knows <laughs> she knows. Um, so one of the f- one thing I saw that that you played a big role in that I was very impressed with is that film called Being Here, and I'll put a link to it on the webpage. But could you just talk a little bit about that and kind of how that came to be? And I met Hillary last week, who was the the director of that, I believe. Um, can you just talk yes. a little bit about that and and the kind of the thought behind it and how it came together. Cause it's, it's a really, really amazing film for being, you know, uh, it packs a powerful punch for being, you know, five or six minutes long. Well, thanks. Um, Pat, Hillary came up with this idea and Hillary's a longtime friend of mine, but she came up with this idea to, uh, put visuals to this prose about the desert that she wrote and, I had just come back from Canada and getting to spend that time with Hillary being the director of photography and kind of seeing her words and imagining what, whatever we wanted. It's such a, it's such a cool opportunity to put visuals to words. And, and that was such an experiment for both of us never having made a film before. We, I mean, we were tripping and, um, through the whole thing, but it was so fun to be able to do that with her. And she's such a talented writer too, and just a great person. It was a really fun project to work on with her. Yeah, I, I was um, I was very impressed with that, as I am with with all your work and all these creatives I talk to. It's just it's a part of me that a part of the brain that I don't have, so I'm <laughs> I'm in awe. <laughs> um, so. You you know most of these adventures you go on in one way or the other, at least in the U.S., are on on public lands. And as you know, there's all this talk these days about the, the public lands being under under threat. And I'm I'm a big history buff, and I feel like they've always been under under threat in one way or the other. But this <laughs> especially pronounced now. Can you just yeah. talk a little bit about you know the importance of public lands to you and what they've meant in your life, and then um, you know your thoughts on the need to to protect them. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, like I was talking about my parents taking us out growing up, we were on mostly BLM land and having access to that space to just go 
explore for weeks at a time was so formative in my childhood and so closely tied to my best days as a kid. I, it would be really hard for me to imagine not getting to share that with my future children or just future generations. And then I think all of my work now, so much of my work depends on the access to public lands and other videographers, photographers, fly fishermen. I mean, especially in Bozeman, there's so many people that depend on access to public land for their livelihoods. It, I think it, it would be such a mistake to sell that off to people. And it would ruin a lot of people's lives, including my own, because that's where I recharge that it's where I base my work out of. It's like, I, I think so much of my drive to create beautiful images is from encouraging people to get outside. So I think it would really be robbing people of that opportunity. I completely agree on that. And I think most people do, you know, I think there's, I agree. there's this, um, there are these loud, this very loud, small minority that makes it seem like there's really a, another side to the argument, but pretty much anybody you talk to, regardless of political beliefs, thinks that, I mean, there's yeah. just a very, very small percentage that doesn't. And, you know, it's, it's a complicated issue, but I mean, that's what makes America, America. And that's why, I, that's, that's why I moved out here. You know, if yeah. you, I mean, the idea of not having public lands, that's how it is on the East coast. And it's, yeah. it's not as, um, it's not as spectacular as it is out here. So I agree. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully yeah. we can find a good solution to that. Um, well, we've already been going almost an hour, which is crazy. I feel like we just started, but, um, so I've got some quick questions that I try to ask everybody on the podcast. And so we can run yes. through those real quick. If you, if you have time, yeah, um, absolutely. do you have any favorite books related to the West or just any favorite books in general books that have, have been formative in your way of thinking? Yeah, I, um, I was listening to your podcast with Brendan and I mean, his book, the, um, Great American Road Trip mixtape, and I'm, I feel like I just mixed up those words. But his that book I've read probably six or seven times. Really? And his, yeah, I mean, I read that when I was on the road, and it felt so relatable to me. That has continued to be one of my favorites. And then right now I'm reading um, Long Nights of the Shadow Catcher. Oh, is about that good? It has been really good so far. And so though I can't say yet that it's my favorite, I feel it's quickly approaching on being one of my favorites. Oh, that's yeah. great to know because I see that one all the time in bookstores and, and several people have mentioned it, but I have not read it. But I, I'll yes. bump it up. on. Is that Timothy Egan? Is that who wrote that? It, it is Timothy Egan. Yeah. And I love Edward Curtis's photography. So for me, it's, it's so interesting. Um, and then the last one that I will recommend is um, Cougar Annie's Garden. And that is about a female cougar hunter uh, who lived in the Vancouver Island area and was a pioneer. And she outlived eight husbands and had just this incredible garden. And I think reading about those types of women that started up early and and we're doing things like that at, in the early 1900s. It's so fascinating for me. I need to read that. That yeah, kind of stuff's great. on my mind now with my, my second daughter being born. 
Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool stuff. So do you have any favorite films or documentaries? I mean, unbranded yes. is up there. Um, man, that is just not a question that I totally prepared for. I have so many. I, it's Planet hard to pick Earth, one. I don't think it's I hard pick to one. pick. It's hard to pick. Planet Earth is always a go-to for inspiration that makes me feel like I sh- I could be doing some really great stuff. It's it's just such a good kick in the right direction to mm-hmm. to create really beautiful work. I would say that a third of the people on this podcast have said Unbranded is one of their favorite documentaries. It's so great. It's so great. It yeah, really is. It I'm really excited is. for his new one. I know. Me too. The River and the Wall. Yeah, it, yeah. it'll be good. So... Um, you, you're obviously, you, you love the outdoors, you're, you're, you climb, you, and then you do photography, writing, you've got all these fun hobbies. Are there any other hobbies that you have that, that may be surprising something that you do that, that may not fit with the, uh, what people would expect? Yeah. I mean, I've started to tip, dip my toe into design work, which feels like not something that I expected I would do, but this is the first time I've lived in a house where I was able to do that. So that's been a really fun thing to kind of explore my interest in. And then we also have three acres and an acre of the land is permaculture garden. And we have three beehives and 20 chickens. So just trying to manage all of that. And I feel like manage is the correct word (laughs) in that sentence. Um, That has been a really joyful part of my interests and free time also is just creating a, a life that we're living off of our own land and um, maybe not completely, but more so than I have in years past. And, and that's a fun thing to explore. Yeah, that sounds fun. Uh, the chickens, I want some chickens. Are they a lot of work? No, they're really not. Uh, they are so fun. I have probably had chickens at seven of the eight places I've lived in the past few years. And I just, they're so fun. They all have personalities. Like it's pretty cool to feed something off of, you know, table scraps or, or chicken feed and knowing that whatever you're feeding them, they're producing in their eggs, which goes back to you. And it's just a cool life cycle and fun for kids too. going out to collect eggs is still one of my favorite parts of the day. Yeah, I need to do that. I think uh, yeah. you may have pushed me over the edge there. Although I need to get, <laughs> need to get permission from the rest of the fam. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, with all these adventures you've been on, you mentioned the the toughest one being um, your trip up in Canada. What mm-hmm. is there? What is the most powerful experience you've had in the outdoors? And powerful could be scary. It could be funny. Um, just challenging. Is there is there one moment that sticks out as in your head as being kind of the the ultimate experience you've had outside? That's a hard question. I know. Yeah, I was thinking about this question, and I feel lucky to have been in so many places, and trying to pinpoint one felt really hard until I thought about my favorite photo that I've taken, and that came from a very non-outdoorsy trip to Pavilion, Wyoming, where also just a blink of a town, I have some family that lives there, and they grow alfalfa, and I was out walking around in their alfalfa field really early one morning and I had my camera. It was my 23rd birthday and my dog scared up a bunch of starlings and 
the timing that I took the photo, there are all these birds flying in the field. I feel like that pinpointed is my most memorable experience outside. Just, it, it was like the pure joy of walking and the photo that came from it feels like such a summary of my life at the time. Is that a photo we could, we could share on the website? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. I'll get that from you. That, that'd be great to yeah. share with people. Um, what is your favorite location in the West? If you can pick just one and it, it could be a town, a certain mountain, certain Valley. Is, is there one place that sticks out as being your favorite? Um, I love the rolling sagebrush hills around Lander. That is a place that I relate to so much, but also East Rosebud in, um, in the Beartooth mountains outside of Red Lodge, Montana. Mm -hmm. That is a place that I visit frequently. Yeah, both are very special. And yes. the last of these questions, and it's a hard one, but what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? It sounds like you've had a lot of great mentors and your family's been so influential in your life. Is there is there one piece of advice that sticks out? Yeah, I watched a film. Um, it was Corey Richards, who's a photographer. Um, it was about his climb doing Gosherbaum to and Pakistan in the winter and it's it's the film is called cold yep. and he gets into an avalanche and survives the avalanche and he is talking about remembering some words that his dad said and his dad always tells him before he goes into the mountains go gently and when I first heard that phrase go gently I wrote it everywhere and I have forever loved that sentiment of just going gently and not crashing and banging through life. And I think that's some of the best advice I've ever been given. That is great advice. I, I have not, I had not heard that. I haven't seen that film, but I want to, it looks like it's pretty powerful. He's a, he's an interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's really talented and that film is really spectacular. You'd really like it. So the people who listen to this podcast love the American West in one way or the other, and it's the full spectrum from ranching all the way to, you know, conservation, art, uh, adventure, full spectrum of people who love the West. If, if you could offer some advice to these people or make a request of them or impart some words of wisdom, wisdom, do you have any, anything you'd like to present to those people? Yeah. I mean, I, um, yeah, I think that my advice would be to get involved in protecting the places that you like to explore. So, or get involved in some organization that protects something that you love. And whether that's, I, I volunteer for the Raptor Conservation Center here, and that has been a really fulfilling part of my life in the past few years, just trying to help better protect the bird populations here. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be my advice is, is get involved with something that you're really passionate about. That's great advice. So how can people find out more about you, connect with you online? Yeah, you can visit my Instagram page, which is Instagram.com slash Becca Skinner. Or you can email me through my website, which is BeccaSkinnerPhotography.com. Well, thank you, Becca. This was so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much, Ed. Thanks for having me here. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.